0: Deuteronomy chapter 32, and because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, would you please, if you are able, stand to your feet to hear from the God who still speaks in his word. And We will begin reading in chapter 31, verse 30. And I will just note as we move along various changes. Chapter 31, verse thirty. And we'll read this initial section, 32 to verse 9, 3130 to 32, 9, and then I will give you a heads up from there. Moses writes, as he's carried along by the Spirit of God, these words. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain. My speech distill as the dew. Like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God but the Lord's portion is his people Jacob his allotted heritage now jump over to verse 15 if you would Deuteronomy 32:15 But Jeshurun grew fat And kicked, you grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. And you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Shaol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. Now, finally, turn over to verse 36. Verse 36, a representative portion of this lengthy section. Verse 36, For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, Where are their gods? The rock in whom they took refuge who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh. With the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy, Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Church family, the grass withers. The flowers all fade but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Music is powerful, isn't it? Its power manifests in several ways. First of all, it is memorable, whereas various forms of prose, often enter the ear only to stick for short periods of time. Poetry, music being one form of poetry, leaves a more lasting imprint on the memory, often an indelible imprint on the memory. This is often why younger students memorize jingles to aid them in acquiring the basic building blocks of knowledge. You'll hear children singing jingles, through kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, and so forth. So it is memorable. Additionally, music engages us at the level of affections. Have you thought about this? It engages us at the level of affections and not simply at the level of the intellect. I mean, it has the ability, as it were, as we're driving down the road, it has the ability to begin to alter our mood to begin to impact how we feel, how we think, what we love, what we hate. It moves us to feel a particular way, and this is why, by the way, church family, this is, this is one of the reasons why congregational singing should aim not simply for what we believe or feel in the moment, but what we ought to believe and feel. In congregational singing, we aspire. In congregational singing, we cry, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. As Deuteronomy is nearing a conclusion and the life of Moses is coming to an end, we're not long from that point in Deuteronomy, God commands this 120 year old pastor and prophet to write a song. This song is filled with themes that we have already been exposed to throughout Deuteronomy. So if you've been with us, so much repetition. There is nothing, I don't think, you're going to hear this morning, if you've been with us throughout Deuteronomy, that you haven't already heard, and perhaps multiple times through the book of Deuteronomy. But rather than in the form of narrative or in the form of law, God chooses to communicate at this point, as the book is wrapping up, he communicates with us in the form of poetry, in the form of song. Over the next few moments together, we're going to unpack this song by identifying, if you're taking notes, four themes. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. <laughs> four themes. <laughs> well, I told someone a couple of days ago we're having four themes. This Lord's Day. And they were shocked, perhaps even bothered, I don't know. But I comforted them. I said, last Lord's Day we had two. We had one to make up. So this morning, four themes found throughout this song, and we will unpack them as we get to them. So you're going to have to wait in suspense to receive the four themes this morning. Let's begin by looking together at chapter 31 verse 30, through chapter 32, verse 2. So look with me, chapter 31, verse 30, and we'll read a few verses. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. A kind of preface to the song, to this form of poetry that we find in Deuteronomy 32. Now, chapter 32. And I mentioned last Lord's Day, by the way, that if I were... If I were uh, writing in the scripture references and the versification, I would have included this, chapter 31, verse 30, as chapter 32, verse 1. But I, I had no part in that. And even the English translations today, they're relying on a tradition that's been around for quite some time. So chapter 32, verse 1, now here is Moses' song. Give ear, O heavens. And I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. Now, I want to point this out briefly because I think it will all come full circle at the conclusion of the sermon this Lord's day morning. The image of dew or rain falling on the ground, producing vegetation, is used regarding this song that Moses is commanded to write. This should conjure up in our minds life. Refreshment, dew, and rain are good things. In fact, when you've been living in a desert for 40 years, they're life giving. And that's what this song is intended to be life giving. I want you to keep this in mind because there will be times in the song where it doesn't feel like it's life giving. In fact, I would suggest to you that the majority of the song doesn't feel anything like something that is refreshing. But if we understand the song correctly, it indeed is the only path to life. So keep that in mind as we move through this. Now look with me at chapter 32, verses 3 and 4, where we come across our first theme chapter 32, verses three and four. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That could be an entire sermon, couldn't it? it? I don't plan on it being an entire sermon. We'll see. The first theme. So this is point one of four. The first theme of this song that surfaces is what I would call God's reliability. God's reliability. And I've borrowed, actually, some of this language from from another brother who has written a commentary on this text, at least the first two points. He didn't have the final two points. But the first two points was a commentary written by Fernando a helpful expositor, expositor's commentary. God's reliability. I want to give credit where credit is due. Notice that the song does not begin with Israel. It's not how the song begins. The song doesn't begin with you and it doesn't begin with me. It begins with God. A.W. Tozer once wrote these words, what comes in our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He wrote that in knowledge of the holy. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so this song begins with who God is. There is nothing more important in all of life for Israel at this time, in this place, as they stood on the plains of Moab about to enter the land of Canaan. And there is nothing more important in all of life for us today right here at First Baptist Powell in Powell, Tennessee, than what we believe about God. It is a proper understanding and love for God that shapes our lives in all the right ways. And it's an improper understanding about God and misguided loves that shape our lives in all the wrong ways. Consider the Garden of Eden for just a moment with me. And you've seen this throughout Deuteronomy. Israel is a picture of Adam and Eve revisited. It's the same thing that we find in Genesis 1 through 3. Adam and Eve fell into sin. In Genesis chapter 3, precisely because they doubted the benevolence, the goodness of God in prohibiting that they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so essentially their problem was a heretical belief about God. God is not good and because he's not good, he's malevolent and not benevolent, he's withholding good things from us. And because they believe the serpent's lie, the serpent's, heresy. By the way, the serpent was the first heretic. Because they believed the serpent's heresy, they fell into sin, disgrace, and death. It was a heretical theology that led to an immoral life and resulting death. This is why, by the way, Boy, I've got to stay on track here. This is this is a bit of an aside, but this is why many in the early church connected right beliefs about God with morally upright living. This is why many in the early church argued that it's no coincidence that when you have a heretical view about God, you typically have a heretical life before God. Back on the path. Notice that God's ways are not simply described as just. you see that? It's not simply that God's ways are just. God's ways are described as justice in verse four. In other words, just is not a characteristic external to God by which God himself is measured. Don't miss that. We don't have this external standard to God by which we measure God's activities. No, God's ways are themselves the standard. God is the standard. God's ways are justice. And this is the case with any attribute or any property. We rightly ascribe to God. God is not righteous per se. He is righteousness. He is not holy, he is holiness. What this means is that God himself and as a result his works are the standard by which everything else is measured. This is massive in a culture that has lost a transcendent standard. It's massive in a culture that is now unmoored and released from a standard that exists beyond the individual. Perhaps the most central way of describing God in our text is with the imagery of a rock. Do you see that? Over and over and over again, you see this image of a rock. Look at verse 4. The rock. Similarly, look down at verse 15. Or Israel, by the way, Jeshurun, the name Jeshurun is just a poetic description of Israel. Israel is described as scoffing at the rock of his salvation. Verses 30 and 31. How could one have chased a thousand and, and two have been have rather put 10,000 10, to flight, excuse me, to put 10,000 to flight, unless, here it is, their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up. Verse 31 For their rock is not as our rock, our enemies are by themselves. The image of a rock conjures up reliability, strength, refuge, power, stability, and being. Uh, think about a rock. At least as it appears, rocks don't tend to change in our lives. If you looked at a large boulder when you were seven and you looked at the same boulder when you were 87, it would be likely that the boulder looked the exact same. Now, we know this isn't true. Rocks do, in fact, change. They're a part of finite creation. But this, of course, helps us understand what's created through the image of a rock, God is immutable, without change. And God exists in himself. He's he's unmoved, as it were. And this, of course, sets God apart from everything else. Verse 39 sums up God's otherness well. In verse 39, we read, See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill, I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. Additionally, the image of a rock communicates the source from which Israel actually had received nourishment throughout their wilderness wandering, and we could, we could really unpack this at length. We're not going to, but I want to mention this to you, and if you're in community group, I hope you are, perhaps your community groups will gather in various homes tonight, and you can talk about this and talk about other things as well. But the image of a rock, if you were an Israelite at this point, the image of a rock communicates to you, oh, this was, this was the instrument, the avenue through which God actually produced water. Exodus chapter 17, verse six, God, God told Moses, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, at Sinai, and you shall strike the rock which is significant, by the way, God is standing on the rock, and the rock is to be stricken. And in striking the rock, what happens? Water shall come out of it. God says, and the people will drink. Worth mentioning here is Paul's interpretation. So much, so much here, but Paul's interpretation of First Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, of these passages where the rock in the wilderness, according to the apostle Paul, is a reference to Christ. Paul writes these words, and all drank the same spiritual drink, that is Israel, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Of course, since Christ is God incarnate, referring to Christ as the rock in a way similar to Deuteronomy 32 would have been appropriate and faithful. Now we'll come back to Christ, of course, but here we're reminded that God is the rock, that God is reliable, that God is the source through which, through whom, God's people are nurtured and nourished, and Christ embodies this reality in being stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That through his death comes life-giving water to those who will drink. That's an entire sermon all by itself. But we're gonna keep going. We won't leave Christ permanently, though. We will come back to him as the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 32 in addition to God's reliability. Second theme. The second theme we find in this text is Israel's rebellion. Israel's rebellion. This is nothing new, is it? If you've been with us in Deuteronomy, you've heard about this ad nauseum. And here it is again. Look with me at verse 5. Notice the contrast. So God is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Verse five, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Israel's rebellion is the antithesis of God's perfection, God's justice, and God's faithfulness. Humanity's rebellion is the antithesis to God's reliability, to who God is, to what God does. When we see God accurately, I want you to notice this, when we see God accurately, such a vision of God produces a terrifying contrast with sinful humanity. You see that in the text? It begins with God. This is a song. This is a poem. It's to be recited over and over and over again. It's to leave an indelible imprint on many generations. And it begins with the reliability of God. And only when one sees God accurately is one ready to see mankind accurately. And this is what happens in the text. Israel is only properly understood and assessed in the light of the revelation of God. And so, and so any attempt, any attempt, church family, to understand who we are as human beings, essentially removed from who God is, is doomed to fail. Fail. Our conclusions about what humanity essentially is will be heretical unless they are rooted and contextualized and grounded in an orthodox Christian view of God. Invariably. I'll give you some examples. If God is not the sovereign ruler of the universe, we are autonomous. Autonomous. Individuals. My life is my life. My choice is my choice. My body is my body. You do you. I'll do me. But if we are formed by the sovereign, transcendent ruler of all of creation. We exist for the purpose of obeying him. My body exists for the purpose of giving him glory. My choices are to be yielded to his commands, My life is hidden in him. And in him we live, move, and have our being. You see, so many of the cultural movements today actually are rooted in a heretical theology. The problem often is not what's manifested. The problem is the root The root understanding about who God is or is not, that will invariably produce views about humanity that we find, of course, to be contrary to Christianity. If God is not holy, if we are not, as Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, in front of, in the presence of the God who is holy, 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 then we are tempted to conclude that we are essentially good. If we're just fine, thank you very much. But if, as Isaiah experienced in Isaiah chapter six, if indeed God alone is holy, 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 if he is holiness, and we see ourselves in his presence, in contrast to him, then we're positioned to understand We are unholy, unholy, unholy. Moreover, we are predisposed to that which displeases him. We are essentially broken, fractured. As Paul the Apostle says in Ephesians 2, dead in our sins and trespasses unless God makes us alive. If God is not, and we'll perhaps stop with this one, If God is not, then we are not image bearers. But we are the coincidental result of purposeless evolutionary developments. And if we're honest, life then has no purpose at all. But if indeed we are the special creation of the living God, then life has eternal purpose. You see? This is why I would suggest to you that Deuteronomy 32 begins not with who we are, but with who God is. And then moves to who we are as fallen human beings represented in Israel. Israel, if we continue to read on, Israel was God's unique people, as verses 8 and 9 indicate when the most high Moses writes gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of god by the way there that's a difficult translation and there are various manuscripts that read a couple of different ways And this is why the science and the practice known as textual criticism is so very helpful. That's the process whereby we try to determine what was in the original manuscripts. And so you may have a a footnote there, an end note there at some point in your text. Some translations may read, Sons of Israel... Others may read angels of God and others may read sons of God. I don't think the essential meaning of the text is changed as we're going to see, but the English Standard Version, and I do happen, by the way, to agree with it, reads sons of God at the end of verse eight. Verse nine, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. In other words, here's what these two verses communicate essentially. While all the nations belong to God, And all the nations possess various territories on account of God's sovereign decree and permission. God has uniquely chosen Israel as his portion, his heritage. And yet, what's the point? They rebelled. That's the point. While all the nations belong to God, he sovereignly selected Israel, but they rebelled against him. As the song goes on to say, God alone and no charlatan God came to Israel's rescue in the beginning. God reminds them of what he had accomplished on their behalf as he rescued them out of Egypt, as he brought them through the Red Sea, as he secured their future in the wilderness, even in the midst of judgment, continuing to persevere with Israel and his promises given to Israel. Verse 13 indicates, he made him, that is God made Israel ride on the high places of the land and he ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. Again, that image of a rock is used. Doubtless calling us back to God as the source of all sustenance. God was good to Israel and they rebelled. And then in verse 15, there's this powerful characteristic of Hebrew poetry in scripture that surfaces. God goes from speaking about Israel in the third person to speaking to Israel in the second person. Notice verse 15. But Jeshurun grew fat. Remember, Jeshurun is a way of describing Israel. Israel grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. We're jumping around just a bit, I know, because one sermon could never do justice to all the details of this text, but what is interesting about this song is that it appears at times to be describing Israel in the past. And by the way, this is one of the characteristics of poetry. The use of tenses It appears to be describing Israel in the past during, let's say, the wilderness wanderings. And right now they're on the plains of Moab, right? They're standing on the plains of Moab. The the wilderness is behind them and the promised land is in front of them. And so perhaps God is simply describing Israel in the past, but I don't think this is the case. I do think God is describing Israel in the past, but remember, this is also a prophecy. This is what Israel will continue to do Look back at chapter 31, just to confirm this for you. Back, back at chapter 31, verse 19 and 20. Well, this is last Lord's Day, we covered this section. And notice what God commands Moses. Now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths. Why? So that this song may be a witness for them, or rather for me, against the people of Israel. So this is gonna serve as a witness against Israel. Verse 20, for when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, when I have brought them into the promised land of Canaan, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them. They will despise me and break my covenant. So this song indeed is, is an indictment against Israel The generation in the wilderness, but it's also to serve as an indictment against future generations who will inevitably rebel against the Lord. The third theme we find in our text, we'll keep moving here. The third theme, in addition to God's reliability and Israel's rebellion, is God's retribution. God's retribution. I invite you to look down with me at chapter 32, verses 21 and 22. 21 and 22. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. The play on words here. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth in its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. Since Israel has worshipped other gods, by the way, other gods who are no god at all, false gods, non-existent gods, There is no other rock. But since Israel has given their allegiance to those false gods that are no God at all, God says, I will use a people that are no people. In other words, I'm going to use a people as my instrument that are not currently my people. The irony here is because you've exchanged my glory With the glory of false gods, I will exchange you with those who are not my people. Moreover, as the text goes on to say, God will actually employ other nations to judge Israel. They will be judged by foolish nations. This was manifested various times and in various ways. Through Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Rome, and others. But that's the idea here. Now, this is one of the passages, we won't turn there, but whenever we preach through Romans, if the Lord tarries and I continue to live, perhaps we will preach through Romans at some point. But this is one of the passages from which Paul quotes in Romans 9 through 11. You can jot this down Romans 10, verse 11. Quotes from Deuteronomy 32 to demonstrate that God is using Gentiles coming to faith in Christ in the church to stir Israel to jealousy. So God continues to do this in fulfillment of the prophecy in Deuteronomy 32. And it isn't simply Israel who will be judged. The other nations who oppose God or exalt themselves arrogantly will also be judged. In verses twenty-eight to thirty-five, and again in verse forty-one, where God states, "I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me." So everyone is going to be judged who opposes the living God. That's the point. Again, we find the same cycle that will will be repeated in Scripture over and over and over again. God is faithful. Humanity is unfaithful. God will judge. God is faithful. Humanity is unfaithful and God will judge. This song will bear testimony to God's just judgment against Israel when the time comes. And it does come over and over and over again. But this is not the end of the story, as you might suspect. In addition to God's reliability, Israel's rebellion ad nauseum, and our own rebellion ad nauseum. And third, God's retribution. Fourth, we are reminded of God's rescue. God's rescue. Look down at verse 36 of chapter 32. Verse 36, chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. For the Lord will vindicate his people. And notice, and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Israel's hope will not be in their own reform. Their hope will not be in concocting the wherewithal to finally obey God's law. Their hope will not be when all these things come upon them and they face divine judgment and they are removed from the land and they are scattered throughout the nations and God employs other foolish nations to judge his own nation. Their hope will not be in coming to the realization that they just need to tap in to what they can provide before God and obey him through their own efforts. they themselves will not be able to remodel their behavior and receive God's favor. Their only hope will be God's gracious and merciful compassion. That's it. God's compassion is the sinner's only hope. God's grace and mercy is the sinner's only hope. Notice at what point Israel is positioned to experience the grace and compassion of God. So at what point does this actually take place? As verse 36 says, when all their power is gone and there is none remaining. You see, when we come to the end of ourselves, when we recognize that we have absolutely nothing to offer, when we are acutely aware of our own moral and spiritual bankruptcy, when it is that in our hands no price we bring, but simply to the cross we cling, then we're positioned for saving. And this is the work of the Spirit. Saving us in spite of us, not because of us. Saving us because of his mercy and compassion. So how will God's gracious compassion to needy sinners materialize? Some of you I could call forward right now and you could answer this question. How is it that God's compassion promised In verse 36 of chapter 32, how is it that that compassion will materialize for God's people? Look again at verse 39. Verse 39. See now that I, even I am he. There is no God beside me I kill and I make alive. life. I wound and I heal and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. It sounds similar to what Jesus says in John 10. That those who trust in him are placed in the Father's hand and none can take them out of the Father's hand. Israel will rebel against God. The result of their rebellion will be God's judgment. They will be in a state of death. God says, I kill, but I make alive. I distribute judgment and I rescue out of judgment. It is my judgment that sends you to the grave and it will be my grace that calls you out of the grave. Notice that God subtly promises that this death sentence is not the end for Israel. God alone kills, he makes alive. Some of you, some of you may be aware of Ezekiel 37 and I want to turn there, I'm not going to turn there. Won't do it, not going to do it. Can't pressure me to do it. Ezekiel 37 There's a wonderful passage in God's word where the prophet Ezekiel is taken in the spirit to a valley of dry bones. And the remains of God's people who were once alive are there. The remains in the form of bones. God's people who were once alive are now dead. Got a valley full of dry bones. It's been there a while. God asks Ezekiel this question, verse 3, can these bones live? And Ezekiel responds, you know, O oh Lord. Good answer. If you don't know the answer. God, you know. God then commands Ezekiel to speak his word over these bones and God then promises to breathe on them the breath of life. Bones come together. You know this? Go read this later. Bones come together and sinews form. Flesh appears. Eventually the spirit of God comes into the bodies and what was previously a valley of dry bones is now a living and breathing army for the Lord. So God takes a people that are judged and in a state of death on account of their rebellion. And he calls those same people, hopeless, it appears, he calls those same people as the God who kills, he shows he's the God who makes alive, and he calls those people out of death into life. Now, how does he do this? How does he do it? the god this is so very rich the god who says to israel i kill i make alive is the god who becomes human he becomes israel but what does that mean he becomes truly human while remaining truly God. He he lives in perfect obedience, and then he submits himself to judgment. Yes. He passes under the sword. The God who says, I kill and I make alive, here in Deuteronomy 32, is the God who submits himself in the incarnate Son to death, even death on a cross. He embraces judgment in place of his people for their sin. And the God who says, I kill and I make alive after undergoing death, conquers death through resurrection from the dead. So how does he do it? How does he call the sinner out of death into life by undergoing death and providing resurrection life himself for the sinner? That's what he's done in Christ. You see, all of this comes together in the person and work of Christ. Deuteronomy is really all about one person. It's all about Christ And it makes no sense outside of the context of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, through whom we have life if we trust in Him. So, friends, this morning, I plead with you. I plead with you to recognize precisely what God says about you in His Word that you're a rebel. as I am that our rebellion has gotten us into an eternal predicament and that predicament results in our death it's why we experience physical death and it's why we will be if we are not in Christ spiritually condemned dead eternally recognize Your need, and then recognize that the God who kills is the God who makes alive. And He's done just that through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who embraced death in your place and conquered death through resurrection and now offers Himself freely to you. Trust in Christ alone for your life. Trust in Christ alone for your flourishing, for what it means to move move out of the valley of dry bones and into joining a living and breathing army for the Lord. Trust in the reality that you can't do this. You cannot do this, but that he's done it for you. And if you'd like to know more about Christ. Christianity, if you think perhaps you've embraced Jesus Christ in faith, maybe for the very first time, if you have protests about Christianity, we would love to talk with you. I'd be thrilled to visit with you. There will be an elder after the service in the room we referred to earlier as the Crossroads. So if you leave this room, take a left. On the right-hand side out there is a room that's labeled Crossroads, and there will be an elder in there who would love to visit with you. And Perhaps I'll have the privilege of visiting with you as well coming alongside of you and you also alongside of us. This leads us all the way to the conclusion, and we've got to wrap this up, of our section where in verses 44 to 47, Moses exhorts the people to hear and receive all of God's word. That's massive, all of God's word. We're coming full circle now, Remember? This began with dew and rain falling and producing vegetation. This, this song is to be life giving. This song is to be an oasis. It's to be refreshing and revitalizing. Notice verses 46 and 47 where Moses says, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today. All the words that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, verse 47, for it is no empty word for you but your very what? Life. By this word, you shall live long in the land that you were going over the Jordan to possess. Now, just in closing or closing before the closing, These verses take on new meaning when considering Israel's inevitable failure and predisposition to sin. They take on new meaning because Israel can't do it and you can't do it and I can't do it. So then those who, in the words of Moses here, those who take to heart all the words are those who recognize their own bankruptcy and rebellion. Those who take to heart all the words are those who realize that the law can reveal sin, but it cannot remedy sin. And those who take to heart all the words are those who realize that the God who kills is the God alone who must make alive again, and that's what he has done in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's why a song that has so much about our failure and resulting death and judgment in it, actually is described at the beginning as dew or rain that falls in the desert and produces vegetation. When interpreted properly, out of our rebellion, we find Christ and the sufficiency of Christ, the rock, whose work is perfect, And all his ways are justice. This morning, we've identified four themes just to sum it up and to review. First, we found the theme of God's reliability. Second, we found Israel's rebellion. We could plug in humanity's rebellion, we could plug in Perry's rebellion. All accurate. Third, we discovered God's retribution and then finally, we found reason for hope and peace and security and assurance in God's rescue, giving life through Christ. Israel's only hope and our only hope is the compassion and grace of God provided through Jesus. And when we read Deuteronomy properly, Christianly, when we read it as we ought to read it, through the lens of Christ, we come to conclusions like the following. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Let's pray together. So Father, this is how we conclude our time together in your word. You must save, and you alone. Thank you that this is precisely what you have accomplished on our behalf through the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and promised future return of Jesus Christ. Teach us, O God, to find our life, our value, our very identity fundamentally in Christ today. And to leave here in your mercy a changed and changing people, a people who tell the story Of having once been blind, but now seeing. Of having once been dead, but now living. We pray this on account of Christ and all God's people said, amen.